God, as we saw in this scripture this morning in Ephesians, is doing a work in us. He's constructing something in our lives. Now, in, in artistry, if you, if you ever in high school worked with clay, I don't know if anybody worked with clay or on a potter's wheel, one of the things that you know is that if you're standing behind somebody working with clay and they're putting their thumbs in and they're working it and kneading it, you don't always know what it's going to become. Is it going to be a cup? Is it going to be a vase? Is it going to be something abstract? Until the artist is done, we don't, we don't know actually what, what they're molding, what they're making. If you stand uh, in back of somebody who's painting on a canvas when they first begin, you don't exactly know what the complete picture is going to be. You look and you go, well, I think that's a forest. Maybe you're making a path. I don't know if those shadows are blue or purple, but I don't know what the finished picture is yet because you are not done. Now, if you've ever watched a glassblower, there's a wonderful place near Seattle where you can go and watch, and uh, they, will, they will blow into this long pipe, they will turn it, and you don't exactly know, again, is this going to be a vase, is it going to be a cup, is it going to be abstract art? Then eventually they snip it, and they put it in cold water, and then you realize what it is. Well, probably one of the, the best ones that comes close to my metaphor, my illustration this morning, is a sculptor. And of course, one of the things a, a sculptor will do is uh, actually take a, a block and um, out, of, out of marble will create a beautiful work of art. Went to the uh, Biblical Arts Museum yesterday, if you've never been there, in Dallas, and they have these beautiful large statues. Many of them are, are stone. Michelangelo, the great Renaissance uh, artist who was a sculptor, had this belief that when he would look at a big block of marble that there was a figure trapped inside and that he was releasing the figure. Well, I mean, we know that's not true. But see, in his mind, it was already done. In God's mind, he knows what he's producing in you. He knows what, you, what he wants you to be, but you've got to cooperate to get there. You, you've got to accept the way in which he's going to work to get, get you there. So one of his great commissions, Michelangelo was commissioned to do, uh, I think it was 19 statues for the tomb of Pope Julius II. Well, he died before he finished. Two of them that he completed are in the Louvre uh, Museum in Paris. But there's about eight of them that were unfinished, and fortunately nobody destroyed them. You can see them in the, in the, uh, uh, the Galleria di Academy in Florence, Italy. And they're most unusual to look at. Because if you go back to Michelangelo's theory that the figure was already inside and he was trying to release it, you look at one block and you'll see a hand coming out. You go to another block and you'll see a foot. Or another block and you see part of a shoulder and part of a head. And so, so again, it, it, going back to that metaphor, it's as if uh, Michelangelo, the great artist, was, was releasing uh, these figures. If somebody's writing a novel and uh, they, they die before they finish the novel, you could finish it if you knew their style, but you don't know exactly what was in their mind. You don't know exactly where those characters were going or what the conclusion was going to be, uh, such as the case of The Mysterious Stranger by, um, by uh, Mark Twain. He never finished it. We don't know how it was to finish. The Last Tycoon by F. Scott Fitzgerald. He died before he finished it. We don't know how it would end. If you've ever heard a symphony, most symphonies have four movements. Some have three. Well, one of them, Schubert's Eighth Symphony, is strangely 
nicknamed the Unfinished Symphony because it has two movements. Uh, there's a lot of theories as to why he didn't finish it. There was illness, distraction, but we have what is essentially called a, an, an Unfinished Symphony. Uh, Barry Cooper, a composer in 1988, found some fragments among the files of Beethoven, Ludwig von Beethoven, and decided to make one more symphony. Now, uh, those of you who know Beethoven, he has nine symphonies. And so he created a tenth symphony. By the way, scholars do not acknowledge it, and I'll tell you why. Because he was making guesses as to where he thought Beethoven was going with all these fragments he put together. But we have no idea if that's what he really meant or that's what he, he really wanted. So let, let me say this to you this morning. We are an unfinished symphony before God. We are the incomplete novel. We are an incomplete biography. We are a figure emerging from stone. We're emerging from a block coaxed by the very hands of God. Now, we do know what Michelangelo meant when he did this wonderful statue of the David. Maybe some of you have seen it in per person. It's in Florence. And if you haven't, you've certainly seen the photograph of the David. And this is the young uh, King David. And it was, uh, it was completed in 1503. It is 17 feet high, and it was produced from one piece of Carrara uh, marble, which comes from Tuscany. And uh, it took four years to complete. But there's an interesting part uh, of the story. It was abandoned for 26 years. Two artists tried to work with this giant piece of marble, and they found flaws in it, imperfections. And they didn't think they could work with the flaws and the imperfections. So it was abandoned in a church courtyard. I don't remember the Italian word, but, but the people in town had a nickname for it. They called it the giant because this big piece of marble weighed 12,000 pounds. And then Michelangelo comes along. And with all the defects and all the imperfections, creates what is one of the greatest works of art that come out of the Renaissance. The interesting thing is that if you visit it in person and go behind it, one of the defects is in the back of the leg, and you can see this flaw. So even with the flaws, Michelangelo as an artist was able uh, to, work, to work around them. You know, uh, recently, uh, I, I think we did a wonderful thing. We, uh, we blessed backpacks over in the prayer room. And uh, many parents and grandparents came, and uh, uh, Brenda just did a marvelous job in putting these tags together. And uh, one tag I was immediately drawn to. And uh, I, asked for, I asked if I could have it, and I was given it. And, and it says, you don't have to be perfect to be amazing. That's actually not a scripture verse. But you know what? It is biblical. You don't have to be perfect to be amazing. You see, God is saying to us, with all your imperfections, I can use you. With all your defects, I can use you in ministry, I can use you in parenting, I can use you in teaching. Wherever I have placed you, God is saying to us, I think you're amazing. And so what he's also saying is rather than focus on your imperfections, rather than focusing on your weakness, Focus on how I, as the artist, are using you, are molding you, are, are shaping you. Let's go back to that scripture again from Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. If you're like me, we're in process. I'm not a perfect person. We have a, we have a flawed pastor. 
we have a flawed youth pastor. I hope this doesn't shock you. You are working with people that are imperfection, and yet with all our imperfections, God uses us, every one of us. So don't ever say to yourself, well, you know, I'm not ready for ministry because I, I have too many problems. God doesn't say that. God says you are amazing because with all of your defects and imperfections, I love you and I'm molding you, and if you allow me to, I'm turning you into something beautiful. We have rough edges, but God's the artist. He's the sculptor. And I think that sculpture is the best metaphor because a, a paintbrush can be like camel's hair, very light, and uh, you could be gently guiding clay or you could be breathing on molten glass. But the sculptor only has two tools. It's a chisel and a hammer. And, and even though a good artist can make it look like it's flowing like cloth, um, it is nonetheless not always a gentle process. Sometimes God is gentle with us. Sometimes he uses a gentle brush. But most often he chips away the rough edges. As I look out, I know that some of you have had difficulties. You, you have felt the hammer blows of God in trying to mold you. It could be the death of a loved one. It could be surgery. Could be failing health, could be loss of a job. And the question you want to ask is, God, what are you teaching me? What are you trying to make me into? Who do you want me to be, not who do I want to be? And, and this next one, you're not going to want to hear. But when you say you want to be like Christ, that means death to self. Nobody wants to die to self. We, we live in a world of self-actualization, which every book in the bookstore says how to be a better this, how to be a better that, uh, how, how to uh, eventually have a great career with a great salary and a big office and a big title. And actually, the Lord is telling us quite the opposite. The Lord is saying, I'm not impressed by those things because I don't, I don't need those things a- at all. I, I went to a foundry some years ago in California. Some of you have been to my house, and I've got this beautiful piece of bronze. It's very heavy. And, and, and it just it looks very, very pretty. But let me tell you, when it came out of the mold, it wasn't pretty at all. Because when they come out of the mold, there are seams and there are rough spots and uh, jagged edges. And so when I went to this California foundry, what I found was there was dust in the air, the sound of grinders, and sparks flying everywhere. Eventually, they were trying to get rid of all those rough edges to make it something something beautiful. And sometimes in our life, um, there are hammer blows. God can allow illness, death of a loved one, bankruptcy, loss of a job, a hurricane flood, a tornado wind. But let me say this, and let me say this emphatically. God always has a good purpose for what he allows. Let me say that again. God always has a good purpose for what he allows. So, so we're tempted to say, why are you punishing me, Lord? But that's not correct theology. God will use those hammer blows in our life to make us into something beautiful. You and I are essentially diamonds in the rough. And so the question is, what are the rough areas in our lives that God is using with sparks flying uh, to make us into what he wants? Are the rough edges bad attitudes? Pride, lust, envy, jealousy. God is at work in our lives. He's cutting, he's shaping, he's filing, he's grinding, he's buffing, he's polishing until every facet 
reflects God's artistry. Let me say something about diamonds. How many of you are wearing diamonds this morning? Maybe you have a good. You have a diamond wedding ring. You have a diamond engagement ring. Maybe some of you have a, a diamond tennis bracelet. Diamonds are greatly valued in our society, and the reason is because they're rare. They're very rare. Uh, most of the diamonds that come out of the earth, some are 150 miles deep. Some are 500 miles deep. And so when you find a diamond, most of them are flawed. And what happens is they cut around the flaws to create facets uh, so that it will, will shine and, and look better. But uh, seldom will you find a diamond that, that is imperfect. There, there, are, there are four C's. This is how they measure a diamond. And if, if you're taking notes, I'll give you the four C's because we don't have a PowerPoint. One is carat. Carat, C-A-R-A-T, is simply weight. How big is the diamond? How much does it weigh? The second one is cut. How do we cut around the imperfections to still make it look brilliant? Next one is color. What is the color of the diamond? And the fourth one is clarity. How, how clear, in fact, is, is the diamond? Well, um, the cutting is a really important part, and we're talking about God's workmanship this morning. Why is that important? If you are not a skilled craftsman and you cut it badly, the diamond looks worse. It becomes dull. It becomes lifeless. If you're a great artist and you cut in such a way that more facets are created, then it, it becomes brilliant. Um, all the colors, by the way, if you have a colored diamond, that's fine. Some have brown diamonds or, or other colors. All colors and diamonds are imperfections. The only diamond that is really rare is colorless. And I'm going to give you a, a Christian metaphor for that in a moment. And clarity. Well, there's actually a slight imperfection in almost every diamond, but some of them can't be seen. Now, here's a metaphor for Christian growth. First of all, let's start with the carrot. The carrot is what the world tells us that we need to be more important, have bigger titles, have bigger offices, and, and, and the world is just, is just pumping up our ego, and yet God says, uh, don't throw your weight around. That doesn't impress me. So God's not interested in weight. In terms of cut, we want to be cut by, by the Lord in such a way that people see Christ in us. We diminish. And color, uh, this is an interesting one because in, term, in terms of color, uh, the best color is no color. In fact, the best diamond is transparent. This is not a diamond. Boy, I wish it were. <laughs> but it's a crystal. I don't believe in crystal balls, so don't worry about any of that. But, but this is almost a pure crystal. There is no imperfection. There are no bubbles in it. There are no uh, lines in it. And actually, the best diamond is transparent. And think about that in terms of Christian growth. The more we're transparent, the more people see Jesus in us. And so we want to become transparent. We want to become something that, that people don't see us. They see the Lord Jesus instead. And so uh, it is far better for us to be um, transparent so Christ is more visible. And clarity, the more, we're, the more we're obedient, the less imperfections we have. Now, some of you know I lived in a monastery for about seven years, and uh, cel celibacy didn't work. I think my wife is sitting over here, so we know it, it, it didn't work. But, but let me tell you, you would think that people living in a monastery, going to church like six times a day, would be very humble. It's not always the case, actually. They actually pumped up our ego. 
And this is how they did it. It wasn't so much in words, it was a scripture they would use. Many are called, few are chosen. They were implying to us that we were spiritually superior to other people. We went to church six times, six times a day. Jesus was not impressed in the Pharisees, was he? He was not, he was not impressed by church attendance. If you have an attendance card for coming to the Oaks and you present that at the gates of heaven, then you're not going to help you. God is not impressed with numbers and attendance. And, and the truth is, uh, even though I was being told that I was, you know, a spiritual person, I didn't feel like it. Uh, deep inside, I, I felt I was still under construction. I still had flaws. I still had weaknesses. And, and I had doubts. And I had, I had doubts that were difficult to overcome. And so really, the only way to understand what God is doing in our life when he allows something difficult is through faith. There's no other way. It's the same faith that Job had. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's what we all must have when, we, when something difficult is allowed by God in our life. Remember, he's not trying to destroy us. He's trying to make us into something wonderful, something beautiful. All according to his purposes. At John McCain's funeral yesterday, I heard these words. His captivity took simple iron and tempered it into steel. Let me say that again. God took John McCain's captivity and transformed simple iron into steel. I don't know that John McCain would have chosen that route. Captivity is too nice a word. We're talking torture. We're talking about starvation. We're talking about a hell on earth. But it created in him the character that we saw as a U.S. senator, as a presidential candidate. Whether you agreed with his positions or politics, this was a great man who passed our, through our way. But he was molded by what seemed like the worst thing that one could ever imagine. A man who wanted to be an admiral, like his father and his grandfather, becomes a prisoner. And, but through that experience, allowing God to use it, I don't know if you knew this, but he was the chaplain in his cell block. He had to go from memory because he obviously had no Bible and no books. Uh, he was in an Episcopalian school when he was young, and everything he could remember he used to teach others about Christ. You know, if any of us was thrown in prison we didn't have a Bible or notes, do we have enough in our head that we could be the chaplain? I hope so. Do we have enough that we could lead other people to Christ? So everything that God allows is according to his purposes, according to his will. We don't have to understand everything. By the way, we don't have to like it. We don't have to pretend it doesn't hurt. We don't have to walk around smiling all the time. I like people who smile, but not all the time. Be because sometimes life hurts. And sometimes God allows things that are very difficult. But remember, he's not trying to destroy us. He's trying to build something that's beautiful. And so in our lives, there will be dust, there will be grinding, there will be sparks. We don't have to like pain, and we don't have to seek it. But with the hammer blow, sometimes he's simply trying to get our attention. Remember, God created us, and we're his creation. We are diamonds in the rough. Now, with, with, with real diamonds, when they're highly polished, they gleam, they sparkle, they shine, they glitter, they flicker with color. They, they radiate great facets of light and they become beautiful. But not when they come out of the ground. 
They're not at all beautiful when they're first discovered. In Sierra Leone, there's a minister who owns a tract of land about the size of this sanctuary. And he has five teenagers that are working for him. They're all about 16, 17 years old. And they're looking for diamonds. And they're hoping to maybe find just a little pebble that, that they could use. Uh, Kumba, John Bull, was 17 years old. And he was one of the five workers looking for diamonds. His dream was to go to college. And he wanted to go from Sierra Leone to Canada to go to college someday. Well, in, 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 looking, in looking for diamonds, uh, you've got to look very, very carefully. And the minister who owned that tract of land, his hope was that in finding a significant diamond, he could build a Christian school, a hospital, roads. He, he had great plans for what he thought they could do. Let me tell you a little about Kumba. Kumba dropped out of school when he was 12, and that was the same year his father died. His mother died when he was 15. He had hoped to find a diamond the size of a pebble. And he'd worked that land day after day. And last year, he found a diamond. I don't have the diamond with me, but I have almost the exact size. I've seen the photographs. This was the size of the diamond he found. 709 carats. One of the biggest diamonds ever. They called it the Peace Diamond. It's in New York right now. They called it the Peace Diamond because before this diamond was found, diamonds were called blood diamonds because they were used to buy guns for rebels in civil wars to kill people. Now, this was called the Peace Diamond. And the great hope of the minister who owned the land was... Uh, he estimated that the value was $80 million. And, of course, he dreamed about going, going to college in Canada. Forgot the other three Cs. It had weight. It had no clarity. It was all foggy. And so it only sold, not for $80 million, it sold for $6 million. And they were hoping to get some kind of a diamond out of it. And so they hoped for maybe a diamond this size. This is slightly smaller than this one, okay? It was not to be. They couldn't get a diamond out of what Kumba found that was this size. They hoped maybe for this. They hoped maybe they could get this, which would be a kind of the core of that size. It wasn't to be. With all the cutting, they couldn't get around all the imperfections. They finally were able to do this. It's about the size of a golf ball. And uh, it, it did end up in, uh, in helping the minister. He did build a Christian school. He got $1 million. And Kumba, he got 10000 He didn't get to go to college. Because uh, with all its weight, it in fact didn't have any, any clarity, which was the other uh, C's that, that we mentioned. There's a, I like movies, and one of the films I like is Donnie Brasco. It's a kind of a mafia film. Why would I like a mafia film? That's another story. Uh, but it's based upon a true story of an FBI agent by the name of Joe Pistone. And Joe Pistone had to infiltrate the mob in New York in order to eventually get enough information to indict them and have them put in prison. And how he got their attention was he was an expert on diamonds. And so one day, one of the mob figures bought these diamonds. He spent a lot of money on them. And um, he went under the name of Donnie Brasco. That was a fake name. And he looked, and he said, Fugazi. And the other guy said, what, what does that mean? What, what is Fugazi? He said, fake. 
He said, well, they can't be fake. Look at them. They're beautiful. They're brilliant. But Joe had a good eye. He said, they're not real. They're all fugazi. They're all, they're all fake. You see, a diamond can look real, but it won't hold up under pressure. Same with, same with a Christian. Jesus looked at the Pharisees and said, fugazi. I don't think Jesus spoke Italian. But, but if he did, he might use the word fake. Because he knew why they looked like they glittered and they looked brilliant. They were counterfeit. They, they, they didn't have uh, a heart for worship and God. And, and he called them out. He called them out on that. Um, Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new spirit within me. As you know, we go into juvenile prisons, and I have a few chaplain friends who from time to time send me the prayer request of, of, of young people. I got this three days ago. These are the prayer requests of a group of boys that are all about 15, 16 years old. I'm going to read them to you. And when I read them, I want you to listen for a pattern. Now, there's an obvious pattern. If you're locked up, you certainly want to <laughs> be, be free. But there's another pattern you're going to hear in these prayers. They're all very short. The, these are the prayers of 15, 16-year-old boys that are incarcerated. I want to go home, please God. I pray to go home a changed person. Pray for the judge to be merciful to me tomorrow. Pray that I go home a changed person. Jesus, give me guidance so that I can become like you and get to go home. Pray that I go home a new person. Pray that I go home and not get into trouble. Pray that I go home and be better. I pray to be a better person when I go home. And this one I really like. I want to be the person I'm supposed to be. And the next one, God, teach me the right way to live and forgive me for all the bad things I've done. Now again, uh, the, these, uh, these prayers are not from pastors or somebody who went to college or somebody who went to seminary. These are young dropouts in trouble. And, and, and predictably, they all want to go home. But did you hear in those prayers how many times they said, I want to be a changed person. I want to be a changed person. Change me, change me. I want to be a new person. Teach me the right way to live. And this one that I really embrace. I want to be the person I'm supposed to be. Do you ever pray that? I do. I sometimes go in our prayer room and I say, I don't know what you're doing in my life. I don't know what you're trying to construct, but make me be the kind of person you want me to be. That's the opposite of our usual prayer. You know, I want to be this or that. And instead, we need to say, God, what, are, what is the construction you're working on in my heart? What are the new roads you're making? What are the new paths that you're clearing? And, and what parts of me are rough and, and, and need to be um, redone? I want to tell you about a diamond in the rough. His name is Brian, Brian Hancock. Brian Hancock was 15 years old. Let me tell you a little about his background. He was raised in Boston. He never knew his father, probably because his mother never knew who his father was either. And his mother was an alcoholic. So, so truly, Brian at 15 was living on the streets. No supervision, no role models. Predictably, he joined a gang in Boston who became a family substitute. Brian was not a violent young man. The sad part was he was with a gang who was violent, and one day they shot and killed a rival gang member, and Brian was sent to prison like the others because he was there. 
He went to a very difficult youth prison in Boston. And when he was there, he met a staff member, I guess you could call him a guard, who didn't like Brian. And almost on every occasion would say to Brian, you're a loser. You are a loser. You will never amount to anything. You're worthless. He would say that to him day after day. One day, Brian was in a class, and Brian said, you know, someday, someday I'm going to be, I'm going to be a lawyer. And this staff member looked at him and laughed in his face and said, are you ridiculous or what? You can't even get a GED. You're never going to graduate from high school. How could you possibly ever go to law school? And he would day after day throw cold water on Brian. Well, a wonderful thing happened in Brian's life. He went to a foster home, and the foster parents were Christians, and they led him to Christ. And a heart of stone became a heart of flesh. And Brian began to grow as a Christian and, uh, uh, and allowed God to begin to mold him. I got to meet him when he was 18 years old and gave him a full scholarship to attend Wheaton College. What a wonderful thing that God was doing with a diamond in the rough, polishing him and cutting him and buffing him. And so uh, he went on with his life. And uh, for a time, we were traveling around the country going into facilities, and we came to a facility in Boston. And I remembered Brian, and I contacted him. At that point, he was living in New Jersey. And I said, Brian, would you come and speak? And he said he would. And, and this is what essentially... Uh, he said to the young people when he got there, he said, I was an inmate in this prison. And there is a future if you turn your heart to God. I went to college and got a four-year degree with highest honors. And I went to law school at Rutgers University with highest honors. And today I'm an attorney, and I'm working for New Jersey government helping other troubled youth. A diamond in the rough had become a gem. And the kids cheered him. But then Brian took me, when he was done speaking, he took me over on the side and he whispered to me. He said, do you see that man standing behind the post? That's the guy who told me I was a loser. That was the guy who told me I would never amount to it. And even today, he doesn't have the courage to come around and shake my hand and acknowledge that I changed. See, some people, some people aren't only uh, uh, rough, diamonds in the rough, they're just rough. And this young man would not admit that he had seen change. And it was change only possible through, through the power of God. The, the world tells us, you go into a bookstore and you see all these books on self-actualization, and the world tells us that the bigger you get, the better. The bigger ego, the bigger office, the, big, the bigger title, those are the things that really matter. And so compared to the, the small ball that I showed you, This is what the world would have you do. The world would tell you you need to inflate. You need to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And so when, when, when the disciples of John the Baptist come to him and say, look, look, Jesus is getting a lot of attention. What should we do? Remember what, remember what John said? I must decrease that he must increase. John the Baptist didn't have a big ball. But he might have said, I need to deflate. And so, so even though the world is telling us that we need, stay put, 
Even though, even though the world tells us that we must get bigger and bigger with higher pay and higher positions and titles, what, what in fact the Lord is telling us is that ultimately he wants us to be like this little marble. And we don't want to die to ourselves, do we? But, but God's not interested. God's not impressed with the bigness of the world. He's trying to make us into something that is beautiful. And yes, death to self means that in fact we're, we're, getting, we're getting smaller. John the Baptist said, he must become greater, I must become less. The King James says, he must increase, I must decrease. As much as we try to conceal it, we are flawed. If we put our focus on ourselves, we miss the point. We look deeply that we're inadequate. We're incapable of serving the Lord without the power of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that true? We're in, we're, we, we are not consistent in pleasing God. Isaiah 64 says this, But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are our potter, and we are the work of your hand. If you've ever worked on a potter's wheel, you know one thing is if you don't put it in the center, it just flies off and it hits a wall. Or if you've ever been working on something that's supposed to be a pot or a vase and it suddenly collapses. Well, there, there's a couple lessons. Let me give you one more scripture. Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. We must decrease. We must deflate. We've got to be willing to allow the hammer blows of life to free that person inside, the person who's trapped, the person who's trying to become what God wants us to become, the person we're meant to be. We're God's workmanship, and we're not complete. God is the potter. We are the clay. He molds us, transforms us, sanctifies us. There are five things. I don't have my PowerPoint, so you'll have to visualize them. There are five things about creating pottery on a, on a potter's wheel. Uh, the first one is you have to add water. Because if you don't add water, it won't be pliable enough to move. And so I think the analogy for Christian growth is you must be in the Word. You must, you must receive living waters. And those waters make you pliable so that God can mold you. The second is, you've got to be centered on the wheel. If you're off-centered on the wheel, it'll just fly off. We are, have to be centered in Jesus Christ, correct? We have to be centered in Jesus Christ in, in order uh, for us to be pliable. And, and the third one is, when you're working uh, on a potter's wheel, you have to go slow and you have to go steady. That's sanctification. We're not going to get there overnight. The fourth one is that, that the potter puts his hands deep within the clay, inside. We have to be changed from the inside out. As it says, the heart of stone has to become a heart of flesh. And the, fourth, the, the fifth one is pressure. If you want that, that thing to grow big and tall, you have to apply a lot of pressure. And that is what God does with us sometimes. So we have to be patient. We're not perfect. We don't always act the right way. Sometimes we talk behind people's back. Sometimes we lose our temper. Sometimes we covet someone else's success. But God knows our defects. He's cutting us. He's shaping us. 
He's turning us into something as we die to ourselves that seems almost hard to see, but is beautiful in the sight of God. God loves us as we get smaller, as the ego reduces, as we deflate us and people see in us Jesus Christ. We can feel confident, as it says in Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. So this morning I ask you, brothers and sisters, who are we? Are we our job title? Are we the size of our office? Are we the size of our income? Are we the car we drive? I don't think any of that matters to the Lord. We are under construction. God is still molding us. God is still shaping us. And sometimes he'll use a hammer, and those hammer blows hurt. But remember, he never does it to hurt us, and he never does it to destroy us. If we would allow God to use pain in our life to mold us into something beautiful that he is producing. Brothers and sisters, we are under construction. Will we allow God to construct us? Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that you don't always spare the hammer on us. You are grinding off the rough edges. Yes, there are sparks that are flying. Sometimes it's uncomfortable, but Father, we want to be the person that we were meant to be. We want to be the person that you are producing us. Allow us to step back. Allow us to decrease. Allow us to deflate so that people who look at us will see Jesus Christ. Allow us, Father, to be transparent so that people will not see us but see you. We pray this in the powerful name of you, Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.